The Torah content from now through Pesach has been sponsored by the Kofsky family in loving memory of Adira, who loved big ideas and asking big questions. Okay, so this is the uh, the re-recording of the first part of this year that did not get recorded before. Uh, this is the Sunday shear from May 24th, uh, entitled Rufa'inu and the Methodology of Tefillah. So the shear has three goals uh, or objectives. The first one is to briefly review the nature of tefillah. Second is to briefly outline a method of attaining kavana and tefillah. And the third is to apply the method to the bracha of Rafa'inu. So let's start with what is tefillah. Uh, if you ask any English speaker how you would translate the verb uh, lehis palel uh, or tefillah, they would probably say pray or prayer. Um, I maintain that that is not a good uh, definition because if you look at the etymology of the English word pray, it comes from the Latin precari, which means to ask earnestly. And I do not, based on my understanding of tefillah, I don't think that's a good uh a good definition. So in contrast, the Hebrew, uh, the shortest of the word lehis palel is pe lamed lamed, pilel. Um, I'm going to offer two definitions of what that means. The first one's based on my own understanding. Uh, second is based on, uh, on a source that I, uh, was, you know, uh, turned on to by Rebbe. Okay. So, uh, my own understanding is that pe lamed lamed means to judge. Okay. Now, where do I get this from? So if you look through, uh, there, are, it's not a very common shortest, but if you look through the psukim, um, in Tanakh, uh, or even in Chumash, you'll see that the, uh, the word Pelam and Lama can always be interpreted in a way that has something to do with judgment. So, for example, in Bereshis, uh, Memches Yud Aleph, uh, when Yaakov is reunited with Yosef, it says, Vayomer Yisrael el Yosef, Ra'ofanecha lo filalti. Um, uh, Yisrael said to Yosef, I did not filalti to see your face. The Rashbam explains, Lo danti bolibi, I did not judge in my mind. Uh, and then he says, kol pilul lashon din. Every instance of pe lamed lamed means judgment. Similarly, the Bredak says, kolomar lo danti ba'atmi v'lo chashavti she'erech od, ki chashavti she'at ames. He says, I myself did not judge, and I didn't think that I would see you again because I thought you died. So they both say judge. Uh, another example is in Devarim in Hazino. It says, ki lo tsurenu tsuram v'oyivinu folilim, or polilim. Um, for not like our rock is their rock, and our enemies are polilim. And Unklos translates, Plelim as Dayan, uh, as basically the Aramaic of Dayanim, judges. Rashi says it's Shoftim. Uh, one more example in Shemos, uh, in Mishpatim, it says, Vanasan Biflelim, he shall give it by the Plelim. And the Ramban, Rabag, both say it means judges. So, I mean, I could go on, but the word Plelim means to judge. So the weird thing though is when we use the verb in the context of davening, we use it in the Hispael, in the reflexive, uh, uh, structure, which literally means to judge oneself. So not only is that weird, um, but we we say lehis palel lashem to to judge oneself to Hashem. So I mean that's very confusing. Are you doing the action to yourself or to Hashem? So my understanding is what it means is uh, lehis palel lashem is to judge oneself in Hashem's framework or in Hashem's value system, if you prefer to say it that way. Um, a person can judge themselves in a number of different frameworks. Let's say you have a, uh, a high school student. So she could judge herself by the popularity standards of her friends. She could judge herself by the, the academic standards of her school, by the, uh, you know, the, the values of her home, by the values of her country. Um, so here we are uh, in, in Tefillah, we're trying to judge ourselves in Hashem's framework, which is, you know, in the framework of objective truth of, um, of Chesed, Staka, Mishpat, um, and uh, okay, sorry about the interruption. Um, yeah, so Hashem's framework is the framework of objective 
uh, you know, Emerson Checker, objective, good and bad, Chesed, Stock on Mishpat, all those, all those things. Okay, so that's one idea of tefillah. The second idea of tefillah comes from this Siddur called Siddur Avodot Halev, which is um, printed in the beginning of the Otar Tefillos. Um, I don't know who the author is, uh, but Rebbe references him in uh, the in in his essay on uh, on prayer. Uh, so the Otar Tefillos, uh, well, sorry, the Siddur, the uh, Avodot Halev says, um, it seems to me in this matter that the root Pelam and Lamed primarily means, then he defines it. Berur machshavos haolos al halev bi'irbuvia, clarification of thoughts that arise in the mind in a state of confusion. Vahavdalas machshava achas mi bein chavroseha, and separation of one thought from among the rest. Okay, so he then goes back and he explains a bunch of examples of this shorish and the pesukim. So he goes to the. I'm just going to read one, the uh, example of Yisrael and Yosef. So he says, Yisrael said to Yosef, I didn't pilalti to see your face, which means. I didn't judge it to be so, or I didn't consider it likely that I would see your face. If he had said, I didn't think, or I didn't imagine, or it didn't occur to my mind, I would have said that Yaakov had given up hope completely and that he had erased Yosef's memory from his mind and forgotten it. But in truth, this was not the case, for he refused to be consoled because one cannot receive consolation over someone who is alive. Sometimes he would say, Yosef isn't here, but he didn't say Yosef is dead. Now, here's the main point. From this, is, it is apparent that different thoughts were wrestling within his mind, but he didn't know what to decide. Therefore, he said, I didn't filalti. So in other words, um, the Avodah Salev's definition is a little bit more nuanced than what we saw from the Rishonim. The Rishonim just said it means to judge, but the Siddur Avodah Salev says it's a specific kind of judgment. It's when you have competing thoughts or confused thoughts or partial thoughts, and your goal is to arrive at one clear thought from among that confusion. So Pilamid Lamid, I would define based on him, is to remove confusion from our thoughts and arrive at a clear conclusion. Okay, but then now he gives an answer to the um, the question of why do we, he says, why is this verb for tefillah always in the reflexive mode, which indicates an, doing an act to oneself? And this is probably the most important idea in tefillah. So he explains, because tefillah does not cause a change or an alteration in Hashem's will, changing it to benefit the davener, because Hashem transcends and is exalted above all change and alteration. As it is said, I am Hashem, I do not change. That's in Malachi. Rather, tefillah effects a change and alteration in the soul of the davener when he gives over his heart and thought to his creator. And through this, when his tefillah is proper, change and alteration will also result in his individual situation. So just to, just to reiterate this point here. So one of the fundamentals of Judaism is that God is one and that he doesn't change. Uh, it's an open pasuk. You know, the Ramam talks about it in Hilkos Yosei Torah. Uh, it's a unanimous point. You know, according to many Rishonim, this is referenced in a number of other psukim. For example, uh, when Moshe was uh, at the burning bush, Hashem introduced himself as Ekiyah, which means I will be what I will be. Uh, and the Mepharshim there point out, uh, Rabag among them, that, you know, Hashem is the only one who can say I will be what I will be. All other temporal created entities are in a state of change or they at one point were different than the way they are now. Only God can say, I will be what I will be because God doesn't change. So this is a fundamental thing because, you know, we're, we're tempted when we make a request of God to treat it as though we're making a request from a human being, right? So let's say uh, you have a kid who wants to spend uh, the weekend at his friend's house. So he, he knows his mom doesn't want him to do that. So he asks his mom, please, will you let me stay at my friend's house? So when he asks his mom that, his goal is to effectuate a change in his mom, to make her go from non-willing to willing. But when we ask Hashem, if we have that in mind, that would be 
a false idea of Hashem because we cannot change Hashem. Hashem cannot change. So rather, what are we doing? We are uh, changing ourselves. And when we change ourselves, actually, let me just read the rest of the Avodos Halev because he explains it pretty well. He says, for Hashem is always ready and prepared to benefit his people who follow in his ways. And that is how he created his world. Rather, it is they, the people, who have blocked the divine beneficence by building a barrier through their actions and their undesirable ways between themselves and their creator. But when they remove this barrier through tefillah, they will automatically become disposed towards the good, such that the davener effects change in himself, causing his soul's level to ascend, thereby preparing him to receive the good. So in other words, like this, when you make a request of God, or when you daven, you're not changing God, you're changing yourself. And once you change yourself, to make yourself worthy of receiving God's good, then you will receive that good. Uh, an analogy could be made to, let's say, an academic scholarship. So you have an um, institution uh, that is offering an academic scholarship to students who meet a certain threshold of uh, academic success. So let's say you have a kid who is not, uh, doesn't have good grades. So right now he doesn't deserve the, um, the scholarship, but if he works and improves his grades and changes himself, to the point where he meets those criteria, then he will automatically be a recipient of the of that of uh, that benefit. Um, so same thing with tefillah is that God is always, so to speak, you know, bestowing the good. It's you know, God is always He's always His benefit is always out there, but we erect barriers uh, which prevent us from receiving that good. So through tefillah, we're trying to change ourselves to make ourselves worthy. You know, uh, he uses the phrase machshir, you know, to, you know, uh, prepared or predisposed or disposed to receive that good. Um, I think Pirkei Alba summarizes this very well uh, in Pirkei Alba's Bey's Dalet, which says, Make his will like your will so that he will do your will like his will. So in other words, if you want God to do what you ask, you you cannot remain, you know, inflexible and just expect God to change. That can't happen, literally. But what you have to do is you have to change your own will, change who you are and what you want and what your value system is in order to better align with God's will. And then Mimela automatically, then, uh, then you will get what you ask for because you're asking, you're asking for what is already God's will. So to summarize here, um, according to the Avodos Halev's definition, Lihis Palel Hashem, is you're changing yourself by engaging in the thought clarification process of tefillah, thereby rendering yourself worthy of receiving the good that constantly flows from Hashem. So it's a process of changing yourself to make yourself worthy of Hashem's goodness. So uh, basic point we just made is lihis palel does not mean to pray, which is to ask earnestly. It means to either judge yourself, okay, which is judging yourself in Hashem's framework, in Hashem's value system, or it means to engage in the process of removing confusion and, and arriving at clarity. Uh, and by changing yourself, you're making yourself worthy of receiving God's uh, bounty and God's goodness. Okay. Um, okay. Any other questions before we go on? Thank you for reminding me, whoever that was. Okay. So quick methodology of tefillah. Okay. So I uh, have developed this method over the years. I call it the mm method of tefillah based on the mnemonic. The mnemonic is mm, tefillah is good. Okay. Uh, and it's the five M's, okay? So we have, uh, I'll put them all on and I'll explain each one. Milim, Mikra, Mepharshim, Mind, and Meaning, okay? Um, so the basic level, so the first M is Milim, is just understanding what the words mean, 
in the text, okay? And, you know, this could be done on a layperson's level of just translating the word. If you're very into grammar, then appreciating the fine subtleties, going through the differences in the different versions of, of the tefillah, you know, you know, let's say comparing. Like I once, uh, uh, I think the first leap forward I had in tefillah, really were, the first two leaps were both based on this. One was when I decided to just translate all the tefillahs uh, that I could, you know, make my own translation. And just the process of trying to go through and, and, and come up with the most precise translation really made me uh, uh, tap into the meaning in a much more significant way. I wasn't doing it by rote because I had to produce a translation. And then the second meaningful thing was I spent a number of years comparing Nusach Ashkenaz with the Rambam's Nusach and just trying to understand many, many, many of the differences between them. So that's words. Okay. Number two, we're going to skip for one second because that's what we're focusing on today. Number three is commentaries on tefillah. There are a bunch of good commentaries. I'm going to share with you two of who I think are the best. Um, mind is just, you know, the first step in learning is you ask questions like any other text and you try to come up with your own ideas and your own understanding consistent with the text and consistent with all of your knowledge. And then five is not really something that is knowledge. It's that, you know, there are certain, um, I don't want to say, I don't want to limit it to psychological, but but associations that you have to certain phrases in tefillah. Let's say, for example, like you went to a specific shear on tefillah, or let's say like you were going through something in your life and a particular line of tefillah like, like jumped out at you, consciously trying to identify those and then bring them to mind when you daven is a very good way of increasing your kavana. Okay. Now, what I want to focus on here for today is the second, um, mm, which is mikra. So background information here. Um, the... So from the Torah, there is no set text for tefillah, okay, um, according to the Ramam. I mean, I think according to everyone, but um, Ramam writes about it. <clears throat> he says that Ezra and his Basti in the Anshikanesis Agdola created the text of tefillah, uh, a uniform text for everybody to use. But what I think people don't fully appreciate or don't realize, I certainly didn't realize this uh, until much later in my davening life, that they used um, uh, psukim from Tanakh as building blocks for the text of tefillah. Okay, and you'll see what this means, because this is the bulk of what we're going to be doing today. Uh, there are two, I think, the two greatest commentaries of, on tefillah that I know of, greatest in the sense that I've gotten the most out of them, are the Ribar Yakar, who was a 13th century Rishon, um, one of the Ramban's Rebbeim. I am not aware of what else he's written other than this commentary on tefillah. And then the Abu Darham, or Abu Darham, however you say his name, a uh, student of the tour in the 14th century who emulated the style of the Ribar Yakar. Now, what I like about these two is uh, they don't always explain what it means, what the words in tefillah mean, but they attempt to trace back, to identify the source psukim for every single phrase in tefillah, okay? So you'll look up any phrase in anywhere in tefillah, including all the brachos, and you'll see they'll quote you the pasuk that they think that the Anshikanesis Hagdullah based this on. Now, I say they think because we don't know for sure. We don't have these records. And there is frequent makhlokas between these two, uh, you know, these two mafarshim. Uh, if you want to find activity, Go through the commentary. Just whenever you see a disagreement, try to define the machlokas, and you'll come up with two different um, takes on that tefillah, usually. Um, so today we're going to be focusing on, focusing on the Ribar Yakar, okay, um, his, uh, his interpretation of our thing. So here's the method, basically. You identify the source psukim uh, using the commentaries, okay? Second step is you look up the source psukim in context. Now, I, I don't know if things have changed in yeshiva. When I was in yeshiva, then there, there are always two camps when people are learning Gemara, okay? There are the people who would find a puzzle in the Gemara and then, like, uh, just not look it up and just move on. And then there are the people who would pull out a Tanakh, look at it in context, try to understand it, and then go back. Now, you can argue what the method, which method is appropriate in Gemara. 
Um, you know, a lot of that depends on what your understanding of the Brisker Derech is. But in this context, I'm going to argue that it's essential. You have to look it up in the context because that's where the Ashkenazi Zagdullah were, they were relying on you knowing these Pesukim and they were drawing from these Pesukim um, and putting them into tefillah. Okay, and just think about the background for one second here, okay? We are the reverse of, I think, what the Anshikonesis Hagdola had. Okay, remember, Ezra and his Bastion were, what, in 5th century BCE? And the Torah Shvalpeh, the Oral Torah, was not written down until at the earliest, like, around 200 CE. So, like, 700, 600 years later-ish. Okay, I don't know the exact amount. So, until the Torah Shvalpeh was written down formally, you know, the only books that we really had were Torah Shvichsav. So, what would happen is um is that uh hold on a second when i get a chat the chat window doesn't open up oh here we go oh nice okay yeah sd uh, says that our school in english has put this with so uh that must be a new thing because they they don't do it as consistently at least as the in, in my article there um anyway so um if you think about it you know the I only think a, i think there's a gemara in megillah or brachos i'd have to look it up that yeah goes through why each uh, of the brachos are in the order they're in, and they always, and they bring down psukim for those. Right, brachos. right. So that is uh, that's that's yeah, so actually I think it's in two. Yeah, it's in, it's in Megillah. I think it's on Yud Zayin Amud Beis or something like that. Um, I think I don't know. Um, and uh, that is showing the psukim for the ordering of the brachos. What I'm talking about is each and every phrase of the bracha comes from a pasuk, uh, and uh, and that I'm not aware of any primary text of Torah Pad that does that other than these Rishonim. Uh, I don't think that's in any Gemara. Um, so what, what I was saying before is like, if you think about it, you know, we're, the, the Torah Pad wasn't written down until like 600, 700 years after, um, after Ezra and Spastian created the, the text of the Tefillah. So if you were davening during that time, what would happen is you would, you would daven and you would recognize, again, in theory, you would recognize where this comes from in Tanakh. We have the opposite experience is we're more familiar with the text of davening than Tanakh. And we basically read through Tanakh when we're learning it. And we're like, oh, I recognize that from davening. You know, it's really the reverse. OK, so uh, so context is key. And the authors of the of the text of Tefillah assumed that you would uh, that you would you know, you'd be familiar with the context. OK, now, so you look up the source in, in context. Step three is understand the source in their original context without thinking about how they're used in tefillah. Okay, the goal is to not just, you know, the goal, again, is to, to appreciate the origin and then apply it. And again, that's the next step, is you re-examine, reinterpret the text of tefillah in light of the ideas that you gleaned from the source pesukim. In some cases, then the original meaning will actually, like, supplant the pshat in tefillah, meaning, like, it will, you'll realize that you actually had the wrong idea in about what you were saying, because uh, you'll see that the, the source context like changes it. But most of the time, I think it'll supplement it. Um, and you, again, you'll see what this means when we go through the example. And then the last step is to apply your newfound understanding in davening while you actually daven. And uh, I uh, and I think the way to do this is you, you know, we all have uh, a certain uh, shot of tefillah in mind. And I think the, 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 the proper balance to strike is you're keeping the shot of tefillah in mind but you're simultaneously recalling the ideas from the source context. Now, if that sounds like men a mental juggling act, I would compare it to, uh, imagine someone is, is giving a speech, okay, and they cite a famous poem or song lyric or like a famous quotation. 
So when you hear that in a speech, you hear it on two levels. Like let's say they quote, you know, a lyric from the Beatles or from Shakespeare or whatever, you know, you hear it on two levels. You hear it in the context that they're using it, but you also associate to the original source and like that's an additional layer of meaning. That's really what our goal is going to be here. So we're going to go through the uh, bracha of Rifa'enu, look up the source pesukim, understand the ideas in their context, and then layer them on top of what we normally think of as we daven. And if this works, then you'll see like a completely new dimension of Rifa'enu. Okay, so this brings us to the end of the second part of, the, of this year. Any questions on this method? Okay, so let's. I'm sorry. I, I, I have a question on the first thing still. If I could just. Yeah, sure. Back. Yeah, I, I don't remember exactly where it is, but Rashi says there are 10 Moshonos of Tefillah. Yeah. So I, I understand uh, his Palel is, I guess, the most or whatever, but how do those other. Right. So that sounds like it would make another a great separate cheer. Uh, I don't know that. I can tell you the closest resource that comes to mind is if you read uh, Rebbe's essay on Tila, on prayer, which I think is still on the YBT website. It's called Prayer. Um, then what he does is he goes through um, the three expressions of Tila that are used by Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov based on Gemara and Brachos. Um, and it, um, and he explains how each of the verbs that are used there, like for example, it uses the word Ahmad by Abraham, like Amidah, and it uses the word Siah, Lasuach by Yitzchak, and it uses the word, uh, Pagia is Vyifka Bamakon by Yaakov. And, and Rabbi Chait explains how each of those verbs is expressing a different idea in, in the activity of tefillah or a different mode of tefillah. And I imagine that with the Rashi that you're referencing, I'm not familiar with it. I imagine that you could do the same thing there also is looking at the different uh, context. But undeniably, like that might be true, undeniably in Chazal, Lihis Palel is used far more than anything else. Uh, that is like the default verb that we use, and that's why I'm treating it as primary. Okay, and then did I hear Leslie had a question, or I don't know if it was Leslie or someone else? Yes, yes, Rabbi yeah. Shneeman. So um, if I remember correctly, the so the Rambam holds that you can be mispalel in any language. Right. So now, how does your three M, five M's work in any language? It won't, right? Right. Yeah. So this is this is a part of the conundrum in uh, in tefillah, and uh, like that halacha poses problems given the Rambam's explanation of how tefillah developed. In other words, he says well, the problem was um, that once the Jews were exiled by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, in the first exile, and they got dispersed into all the lands, their languages started getting mixed up in the languages of the people who they assimilated with or that they were living among, and they couldn't daven in one language. It was all a confusion. Um, and so Ezra and his basin created a set text um, in Lashon HaKodesh, in you know the holy language, uh, to, um, to what do you call it, so that everyone would have the proper ideas, at least have access to the proper ideas uh, to say when davening and they wouldn't be relying on their own like formulation in this, this mixed up language. So the question in light of that is, okay, that's great. But then how is it that you're allowed to daven in another language? And the Ramam does say you're allowed to daven and take brachos in whatever language you want, uh, you know, presuming you, uh, that you understand it. So, um, briefly, brief answer to that question, according to my understanding is, um, the problem with mixing up the languages was not the languages per se. In other words, the problem is not that Jews were davening in Aramaic, in the Aramaic tongue. 
problem is that different languages are a reflection of different ideas and values. And as we know, like there are not, there are no exact translations for certain terms, you know, like Rebichet mentions his go-to example that I've heard in his Tefillah classes is, you know, there's no real word for chacham in, um, you know, in, in, uh, in English. Well, you could say sage, you know, wise man, intellectual, doesn't quite capture it, you know, or let's say like uh, in Yiddish, you know, there's lots of Yiddish phrases that, you know, you, you, like there's no good translation of chutzpah, you know, like, like, uh, you know, brazenness, like that doesn't quite capture it. Um, and then there are other things that are completely distorted. Let's say, for example, like, um, if you say in English, um, I, I desire wealth, I want to be wealthy. So wealthy in English, in the Western value, value system, wealthy means you have a lot of money or a lot of possessions. But then in the Torah's value system, Ezihu Ashir Hasameh Bechoko, who is wealthy, one who is content with what they have. Now, a person davening in English with the English meaning of wealth and a person davening in Hebrew with the Torah notion of, of wealth are going to be asking for completely different things, you know? So my answer to your question, Leslie, is that even though you are allowed to daven in, uh, in English or in other, other languages, it still should be tied to an accurate understanding of the Hebrew, of the original Hebrew as much as possible. And the best that Ezra and Basin could do was to create a set text with all the ideas like embedded in, 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 in the sitter. It's up to us to understand what those terms mean in the Torah's value system. And that's very hard for us because we're so immersed in, uh, in a foreign value system. So yes, you're allowed to dive in, in English, but we all should try as much as possible to, uh, to understand what the English terms mean in the actual like value system of the Torah, uh, and ultimately with the goal of, of saying it in the original language, because nothing, there's no such thing as an exact translation. I had a question. Yeah, sure, Isaiah. Why would you say it's important to apply the original shot in its context of the pasuk to your uh, tula? Um, Meaning, like it should really only be important in the context within tefillah. Of the ah, right. So th- 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 that I believe is because um, uh, that's a good question. So you're, you're, what you're asking is basically maybe Hazal just borrowed the phrasing, but they didn't really want you to think about those ideas. Like that, I'm not saying that you're, you're suggesting that, but you're, that's that's the question that you're raising. Um, and maybe they're just using the language of tefillah, you know, of, of, of the psukim. So it is a possibility. Um, I don't think that that's the case because, again, like I said, you know, Torah Shvichsav had a certain primacy that that uh, in in back in the day that it doesn't have now, and I think they counted on people knowing that and applying those ideas. And again, it's just kind of like you know, again in my my speaker example, when you if a speaker incorporates a famous quotation or song lyric or poem into a speech, like yeah, they could just be borrowing the the phrasing, but they're they're you know, there's a certain rhetorical effect of whether it's connotation, whether it's denotation whether it's like uh, trying to just get your train of thought into thinking along those lines. I, I, I'm assuming this because the, the Rebar Yakar and the Abudraham bring down those psukim and they're not just like doing it so that you can like say, oh, that's where it comes from. Like they're doing it as a perush of tefillah. Like this is what the Rebar Yakar did m- mostly in his commentary. He just linked you to the psukim. And I, I, I'm making the assumption he's doing that because it'll help you understand tefillah, you know, not just like token, like looking it up. So that's, that's my, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that it's, I, I haven't, he, unfortunately he didn't write an introduction to his, uh, his commentary and Yuvud Raham didn't mention this in his introduction. So I don't know for sure, but this is my assumption. Okay. All right. Thanks, yep. Any other questions or should we go on to Rafaino? All right, let's go on to Rafaino. So 
first, let's start off with the translation here. Okay, and I'm going to use Ash Nusach Ashkenaz because it, it's very close to what the Rebar Yakar, um, uh, to his version. Um, but there, you know, there are obviously different versions of this, and you'd have to explore each of the versions on their own. Uh, for you are our praise. Bring up a complete healing for all of our ailments. For God, King, the faithful healer, and merciful one are you. Uh, and then this next phrase, this is a point the Avudraham makes in the very beginning. Uh, and the Avodah Salev also mentions this. People translate it as blessed are you, Hashem. Um, and that's not wrong. Uh, but I think you know, when you bless a human being, you're like bestowing something on them. But Abraham mentions that the real method is, or sorry, the real meaning of Baruch Atah is, it's an adjective, is you're describing God as Mikor Habracha. So I always translate this as not blessed are you Hashem, because that's just vague. You Hashem are the source of blessing. Rofei Cholei Amo Israel, who heals the sick of his people Israel. Okay, so this is the translation that we're going to be working on, uh, working with, I mean. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to color code it, okay, based on the psukim from the Rebar Yakar. Okay, so if you color code, if you color all the psukim that he traces back, this is what you get, okay? And I'll, I'll show you what I mean in a second. The, the white uh, words and phrases are the ones that he does not uh, cite a source for, either because um, his version of the Shimon Esri didn't have it or because it was included in the previous phrases. Okay, so we're focusing on only these colored ones. So I'm gonna go through each of the Pesukim, just translate them, and then we'll look at each in its context. Okay. Comes from a Pesukim Yermiyahu. Heal me, Hashem, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, because you are uh, my praise. Okay, next Pesuk, also from Yermiyahu. Bring up a... Um, a complete healing for all of our uh, afflictions. So in Yirmiyahu, it's ki a'ale arucha lach, for I will bring up a healing for you. Arucha is a synonym of rufua. And from your afflictions, I will heal you. Okay, so you can see it's not as exact as the first pasuk, but it's a similar uh, phrasing here. Okay. Uh, this next part is a little, uh, um, oh, sorry, the next part's fine. Okay. Uh, so, ki kel melech rofei neman brachmanata. Uh, for you are the, you are the God, King, the trustworthy healer, who is merciful. Comes from Shemos. The entire, uh, sickness that I placed on Egypt, um, I will not place upon you because I am Hashem, your healer. Okay? And then neman comes from a very weird source. Okay? Neman means trustworthy in the context of the tefillah. But then the, Rebar Yakar traces it to this phrase. Makus gedolos v'neemanos. Uh, great and trustworthy afflictions, the chalaim ra'im v'ne'amanim, and terrible and trustworthy illnesses. Okay, we'll get to that in a second. And then the conclusion, Baruch Hashem Rofei Cholayam Yisrael. So he says this could also be traced back to the Pasuk in Shemos, but he also quotes another Pasuk in Hazino. Ani amis v'achaye machatsi v'anierpav in miyadi matiel. I bring death and I bring life. I have stricken uh, or wounded, wounded, and I, I have healed. I will heal, uh, and there is no one who can save from my hand. Okay, so there you have it. Okay, these are the psukim that the Rufino derives from. Okay, so now what we have to do is go to step two, is look these up in their original context and uh, see what they mean there. But in order Real to set us up... Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, for the Ne'emonim, he specifically relates it to the second part of the Pasuk and not the first, not the Ne'emonos? Um, 
he only quotes those three words, I believe, but, um, uh, but what do you call it? Uh, it, it could be that he was referencing the entire Pasuk. I just don't, I don't know his style, whether if he quotes part of a Pasuk, then he's excluding the other part, you know, or, uh, or if he's like assuming that you're going to look at the other part. Yeah. No, not entirely sure. Um, I think we'll find, by the way, the approach that it's not going to matter. Okay. So, uh, to set, to set us up, let's go over really quickly each line one at a time. Before we look at it in context, we'll, we'll look at what we think we're asking for. Okay. Now I'm going to make an assumption here about, about all of us. Okay. I, I, when we say heal us and we will be healed, save us and we will be saved for you are our praise. I think that we're under the impression that we're asking Hashem to heal us from physical illness, right? Heal us and save us from illness. Okay. You are our praise is a little weird. Okay. And not all the versions of people have that. I, I think that's shot. Like, have you ever thought that you're asking Hashem to heal you from anything other than sickness? I don't, I don't think so. And if you just did the the yeshiva guy, like, I'll token, look it up, and then, like, close the book, and you just saw this puzzle without context, you'd be like, oh, yeah, Yumiyahu was, like, asking to be healed. Okay, like, he probably, like, was sick, and he was asking to be healed. Okay, let's check out the context now. Okay, heal me, Hashem, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are my praise. Behold, they say to me, where is the word of Hashem? Let us see it come true. And you got to say that in a taunting voice, okay? He's talking about the other people, uh, the rest of Kalah Yisrael. They say, where is the word of Hashem? Let us see it come true. And I was not anxious to become a shepherd for you, and I did not desire a day of distressful prophecies. You know this. The words of my lips were directed to your presence. Um, what he's referring to here is if you look in the first parak of Yumiahu, when Yumiahu first got this mission, he basically, you know, echoed Moshe Rabbeinu saying, like, I don't want this. I don't, you know, this is not for me. I'm not, I'm not suited for this. I'm, I'm afraid, you know. So he's basically saying to Hashem here, I didn't want this. I didn't ask for this. Uh, may you not cause me dismay, for you are my shelter on a day of harm. Let my pursuers be shamed and let them, let me not be shamed. Let them be dismayed, but let me not be dismayed. Bring upon them a day of harm and devastate them with a double disaster. So, so what's absent from here? No mention of, of, of actual illness. Okay. Now you might say, okay, well, maybe he was referring to an illness. Now, so I'll show you in the Mepharshim, uh, my go-to, uh, Pirush on Tanakh, if it's available, is Rudak. So I'm, I'm, I'm sticking with Rudak here. So here's what the Rudak says. Heal me Hashem. Yumiahu requested healing from the wound and the pain. As he said earlier in the two chapters earlier, why has my pain become everlasting and my wound acute? And this pain and wound, as we explained there, refers to his being degraded and cursed. Hmm. Okay. So he's using wound as a muscle, as a metaphor for degradation. Okay. Um, and he says, for you are my praise. I praise myself with you saying that you would save me from their hand. Okay. Now, because, because we want to look at everything in its context, let's look up that puzzle in Yirmiyahu 15. Okay. And get the, the full context there. So in 15, he says, um, uh, again, he's talking about his, uh, the, the rest of the Jews who are, are, um, tormenting him. You know, Hashem, remember me, think of me and avenge me of my pursuers in your patience with them. Do not take my life, meaning don't have mercy on them in a way that will threaten me. Cause remember Yirmiyahu actually like not only did he get death threats from the rest of the Jews, but like he was actually he had uh you know assassination attempt um on his life because he was rebuking them. As soon as your words come to me, I devour them. For me your word was the joy and gladness of my heart. For your name was proclaimed upon me, O Hashem God of legions. Yet I did not sit in the company of revelers and rejoice. Because of your mission I sat alone, for you filled me with prophecies of fury. Why has my pain become everlasting and my wound acute? It refuses to be healed. You have become like a disillusionment to me, like unfaithful waters, which is a little bit of a poetic um, irony here, because uh, earlier in uh, Yirmiyahu, then Yirmiyahu is talking to Bnei Israel and he says that that Avodah Zarah is like 
water in broken cisterns that can't hold the water. And Hashem is like a wellspring of water that's reliable. And now he's calling Hashem uh, unfaithful waters. Okay. Um, yeah, you give me how I had it tough. Okay. So here you see, again, the Radak was not making this up. Again, he's talking about my wound. But the wound here is talking not about a physical wound. It's talking about the way people treated him. And let's look at the Radak on, he doesn't comment uh, in a very elaborate way on 18, but he comments on 15, okay? Um, Yet I did not sit in the company of revelers because your word was the joy of my heart. And his statement in my heart means to say the joy of my intellect. Okay, so in other words, Yumiahu is basically trying to make a distinction. He's saying, look, Hashem, I enjoy being a Navi in the sense that I have intellectual enjoyment from from contemplating your nevuah and receiving it and thinking about it. Okay. But with another type of joy, I did not rejoice, namely the bodily joy. And I'm translating bodily here as psychological. You'll see why. In which I sit in their group and congregation when they are rejoicing. Again, this is the other Jews. And I rejoice and I rejoice with them. This psychological joy, I did not have. I didn't even have any friendship with them, but instead I sat alone for I was secluded in my house. Okay. So um, he's telling Hashem, basically, he's like, look, it's not your Navua. It's not being a Navi in terms of getting Navua that I, I, that's making me miserable. It's the, it's the fact that I'm an outcast and I can't participate with other people in their rejoicing and I don't have any friends. I'm just alone in my house. And just to drive this point home, I, 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 I don't know, if, you know, roll your eyes at this. Uh, so whenever I start teaching uh, Yumiahu to, when we first start doing Yumiahu in, in my uh, high school class, so then I, uh, before we start learning in depth, I have uh, an extra credit assignment where I say, uh, find an uh, image on Google Images and uh, of what you think Yumiahu looks like and then send it to me. Okay. So typically this is what I get from students, you know, the classic like Old Testament uh, prophet. Okay. And then I reveal to them, um, according at least to the Abravanel, this is actually a more accurate depiction of what Yumiahu looked like. Okay. According to the Abravanel, uh, Yumiahu was between the ages of 12 and 15 when he first got his Navua. Um, and in a lot of these, um, uh, I don't know exactly the timeline about which chapters correspond to which parts in the Sefer, but when you think of a teenager, okay, who also, by the way, the Bravanel even goes so far as to say, like, he hadn't even completed his schooling. That's why there's so many spelling mistakes in Yumiahu. Uh, he got pulled out of school, you know, for, for his Navua. Um, if you think about that Yumiahu, um, and you think about what he's saying here in the, um, uh, I didn't have any, sorry, I didn't have any friends. All my friends are out there partying and like, I'm sitting alone at home. I'm wounded. Like it's a real, like for, for, again, I'm, obviously he's not an ordinary teenager. He's a Navi, but you see from this, he is actually like, expressing this terrible, terrible loneliness. And I think there's just an added degree of uh, empathy if you go with the, uh, with the Abravanel's uh, uh, depiction of Yumiahu. So again, we have here, now we, now we can see this in its context. So in the original context, heal me, Hashem, I will be healed, save me, I will be saved, for you are my praise. Not talking about a physical ailment. I mean, not talking about physical illness. So now we go back and we, we look at, so what is the shot in its original context? What is Yumiahu actually asking for? He's asking Hashem to heal him and save him from the psychological suffering caused by social disgrace, social antagonism, and social isolation from his fellow Jews who resented him for rebuking them. No illness. Okay? That's puzzle one. Okay, and what we're going to do is we're going to go through each puzzle and then put it all together at the end. Okay? Okay. Puzzle two. 
bring up a complete healing for all of our ailments. I think when we dive in this, we think to our, uh, we think it means completely heals from all our sicknesses, right? We're asking for Shlema, you know, uh, like meaning not a partial healing, also not a temporary healing, a full healing, and for all of our physical afflictions, okay? Check out the context. So this is Hashem talking to the Jewish people. Your injury is grave, your wound is acute. No doctor judges your wound to have a cure. Medications or remedy do not exist for you. All your loved ones have forgotten you. They do not inquire after you. For I struck you with the blow of an enemy, with a cruel reproof because of your many sins, your transgressions that were so numerous. How can you cry out over your injury, over the pain that is grave? Uh, it is because of your many sins, your transgressions that were so numerous that I inflicted these upon you. Nevertheless, all who devoured you shall themselves be devoured. All who oppressed you will all go into captivity. Those who trampled you will become trampled, and all who despoiled you I shall deliver to become spoils. And here's our Pasuk. For I will bring up a cure for you, and I will heal you from your wounds, the word of Hashem. For they called you discarded uh, or outcast, uh, saying, she is Tzion, no one cares about her. So what do we see once again? No physical illness. <laughs> okay, again, the, uh, the, the illness and the wound is being, and the cure is, is, is being used metaphorically here. And once again, Trusty Radak explains, uh, what does it mean all your loved ones have forgotten you? Assyria and Egypt to whom you went for help, they have forgotten you. So this is when, when Klaishro was being invaded by, uh, by Babel, by Nebuchadnezzar, um, by Babylonia. So then the Jews went to the neighboring nations, to Assyria and Egypt, and Assyria and Egypt turned their backs on them and abandoned them. Uh, and then the Radak, so that's what it means that your loved ones have forgotten you, meaning in the muscle, in geopolitical terms, your loved ones, your, your allies. Um, and then he quotes his father. He says, uh, they do not inquire after you. So my father and master of blessed memory explained all of your loved ones have forgotten you in relation to the metaphor of disease, saying, Again, he's, he's saying explicitly again that this is a metaphor of disease. It is normal human behavior for the loved ones of the sick person to come and visit him. But if they see that his illness is so severe that he is about to die, the bad people among his loved ones will bring will give up hope and will neither visit him nor inquire after him. So in other words, like the typical pattern, if you are sick, then you get visited by a lot of people. But if it's really bad, so then only your closest friends will continue to visit you and your peripheral friends, uh, your friends who are not so good, will will stop visiting you and will abandon you. Okay, but you meaning Klai Yisrael, all of your loved ones have forgotten you, both the good, the bad, and the good. And they were right to judge your illness as fatal, for I have uh, stricken you with an enemy's sword. Okay. So when we go back to our puzzle here, okay, what are we seeing once more? Okay, again, we're not talking about the physical, any physical elements here, okay? Once again, what are we talking about? Hashem is promising to heal and save B'nai Yisrael from the psychological suffering caused by the social disgrace social antagonism and social isolation from their allies. Okay, this is not personal like Yumiahu himself. This is your friends of among the nations have forgotten you and have neglected you. You are discarded one. No one remembers you. Uh, and who brought this on? They, they themselves brought it on. Like he says in the Pasuk here, um, uh, it is because of your many sins, your transgressions that were so numerous that I inflicted these upon you, right? So Claudius are all sins. They get punished. The punishment is so bad that all of their friends run away and no one's visiting them. Okay, so that's the context of the second Pasuk. Alrighty, moving right along. Alright, this one's a double, uh, a double dose. I learned this as a, um, two sides of the same coin. So, for God, King, the faithful healer, and merciful one are you. So I think what we mean when we say God is faithful is, uh, you are faithful to heal our illness. Um, side point, if anyone figures out what Melech is doing in here, then let me know, cause, uh, didn't find any explanations of that, and not everyone has it. So I don't know why we're invoking God's uh, kingship here. Um, we might be able to explain it based on the idea in the year, but we'll see. 
Anyway, you are faithful to heal our illnesses. Okay, so let's look at the Pesukim. Uh This is right after Yamsuf, or uh, shortly after Yamsuf. Uh, Moshe caused Israel to journey from the Sea of Reeds, and they went out to the wilderness of Shur. They went for a three-day period in the wilderness, but they could not find water. They came to Marah, but they could not drink the waters of Marah because they were bitter. Therefore, they named it Marah, means bitter. The people complained against Moshe, saying, what shall we drink? He cried out to Hashem, and Hashem showed him a tree, uh, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There he established um, for the nation a decree and an ordinance, and there he tested it. He said, and here's the key phrase, if you will surely listen to the voice of Hashem, your God, and do what is upright in his eyes, and you give ear to his commandments, and you observe all his decrees, then all the disease that I placed in Egypt, I will not bring upon you, for I am Hashem, your healer. Okay, now, um, we noticed with the first two source psukim that the disease was a metaphor, okay? Here, it's not clear whether it's a metaphor or not, because he's saying all the disease I placed in Egypt. And if you look at the Mepharshim, if you look at the commentators, some of them learn that the disease is a metaphor for the plagues, okay? Some of them view the disease as specific plagues, like boils or like, you know, cattle disease, you know, um, livestock disease. And some, like the Sforno, say the disease here is a reference to bad character traits and false ideas, okay? So unclear whether this disease is literal, okay? But if you go to the other part of the trustworthy diseases, he says, this is in Kisavo, in the Tochava, in the rebuke, the second rebuke, in Devarim, if you will not be careful to perform all the words of the Torah, of this Torah that are written in this book, to fear the honored and awesome name, Hashem your God, then Hashem will make extraordinary your blows on the blows of your offspring. Great and faithful blows. Oh, I think, you know, sorry, I think I should translate as afflictions. That's how I've been translating up until now. Makos. And harmful and faithful diseases. He will bring back upon you all the sufferings of Egypt of which you were terrified, and they will cleave to you. Even any illness and blow and affliction that is not written in the, this book of the Torah, Hashem will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Okay, so what does he mean, uh, any blow that's not written in the book of the Torah? So if you look back in the Tokacha, which as you can see is like over, over 60 psukim, here are examples of the diseases that are mentioned in, earlier in the Parsha that were listed. The plague, uh, consumption, fever, inflammation, burning, emaciation, jaundice. These again, these are... Uh, Mepharshim's best guesses as to what these illnesses are. Burning rash of Egypt, hemorrhoids, boils, scabs from which you will not be able to be healed, madness, blindness, confounding of the heart, evil burning rash on the knees and on the thighs. You will not be able to be cured from the sole of your foot to your, to your uh, scalp, right? So the point I'm trying to make here is, um, you know, first Pasuk in Rufa'inu, not a literal disease. Second Pasuk in Rufa'inu, not a literal disease. Third one, ambiguous. This Pasuk, this is definitely literal. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know anyone who takes these very, very specific illnesses as elaborate metaphors, okay? So what do we get when we put all this together? Okay, so in our tefillah, we're saying this nice, cheerful phrase of, you, God, uh, king, the faithful healer, and merciful one are you. It sounds so nice. But then you look at the context, and it's basically a threat, okay? Hashem is faithful to heal our illnesses if we obey his mitzvot, but if we don't follow his mitzvot, then he will bring faithful illnesses upon us until we are destroyed, and it's going to be painful, and you're going to have scabs, and you're going to have diseases, and blindness and madness, and it's going to be horrible, okay? So we're referencing that in, in this, in this tefillah, okay? Um, and again, see, going back to Isaiah's question about, like, uh, you know, how do we know that they're actually referencing these things? Again, making the assumption here, and maybe I'm naive for making this assumption, but I am assuming that in the time of, you know, our golden ages, you know, and before Torah of was written down, people knew Tanakh, you know, that was what they learned, you know, and you, especially if you're going by Chazal's program of, you know, learning Mikra at five and then starting Mishnah at 10 and then Gemara at 15. I don't know when that started. People know their Tanakh. So if you 
think back to God, you are a faithful healer. Uh, sorry, you are a, a rofe. You'll think of the time when God calls himself a rofe in Shamos, and you'll be like, oh, yeah, God is a rofe. Oh, I'm not going to go all the way back. God is a rofe if we follow his missiles, but if not, he'll, he'll bring us disease, you know. Uh, and then Ne'emanim, you know, Ne'eman, there is no place in, at least according to the Rebar Yakar, no place in Tanakh where God is described as a faithful healer. That's why he has to go to the closest thing, which is faithful in diseases. And he has to make this parallel threat of faithful to cure us, but faithful to, to punish us. Okay. Also, by the way, just this is a side point. Question? Yes, yeah, sure. Or observation, maybe. It, it seems yeah, yeah. curious. It's curious that the, the Pasuk in Shmos, this is Kiyani Hashem that's, that's prior to, to a disease. In other words, it's it's like I won't bring I won't bring a, a disease on you because right. I'm your healer. Usually, healer is post. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Yeah, I got to think about that. Uh, I I might have a partial answer for you later on in in uh, in the thing. I'll try to remember when we get to that point. Um, but it's a good question. Um, this is not a proof, but just something I wanted to include here. So another underrated commentary on tefillah commentary is in the tour in his halachic work. He goes through every bracha um, v'shmon uh, esrei, and he gives these gematrias. You know, the Balatorim, uh, you know, lots of gematrias here. Um, and uh, and he, what he'll do is he'll count up the number of words in each bracha and the number of letters, and he'll say what they allude to. So by Rafa'inu, one of the things he says is, if you count Rafa'inu, it has 27 words, and that corresponds to the 27 words in that puzzle in Shemos of, I am Hashem, your healer. Uh, and he says, because in the merit of the Torah and mitzvahs, healing comes. So the fact that he quotes this Pasuk, again, he's not deriving it from the Gematria, but he's saying that this is a central idea in this bracha, that our healing and our sickness are dependent on uh, on our, our Torah and mitzvahs. Okay, last phrase, uh, and then we can put it all together. Baruch HaTashem Amo Yisrael. So the Riber Yarkar, so I, again, I think when we say this, we think, what does it mean God heals Israel? Okay. But the Pasuk that the Rebar Yakar quoted was in Hazino. So I quoted the context one Pasuk earlier. See now that I, this is Hashem talking, I, I am he, and no God is with me. I bring death and I bring life. I struck down and I will heal, and there is no rescuer from my hand. Now, you could look at the larger context of Hazino. Uh, I found what I needed in the, in the Raul Bog just for this context. And by the way, when I say you should look up the context, that's like an intuition, a matter of intuition. How much context do you need in order to be able to understand how the Anshik and are using this? Um, let's say like in those Yumiyahu things, you could argue, like maybe I need to understand the entire Sefer Yumiyahu, and I can't just go by the local context. That's up to you in your intuition when you're learning. So I just stuck to this, these two in here. So the Raul Bog gives a beautiful explanation here. See now that I, I am he. In other words, I am the one who is in a constant state without any change. Same idea that we started our, 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 our class with here of God doesn't change. Again, just like God told Moshe, um, I will be what I will be. I, I do not change. Uh, just like in the Yudgum Amidus HaRachamim, the Rabbah says Hashem Hashem is referring to the idea that I am the unchanging Hashem. Uh, Rob Bog is saying that for here. I, I am he. The double I means I don't change. And I'm the one who is eternal and there's no cause prior to me. I bring death and I bring life. He said this to teach that he will bring a fatal punishment to Israel for their sins. And he will resurrect them after this. He will strike and his hand will heal. 
But one should not think that there are two gods, one who is the cause of good and one who is the cause of bad, as was thought by the Egyptians and as some of the Jews erroneously believed. Uh, for this reason, he said, and no god is with me. Uh, this is a, a trope in the Rabag that he, he uh, and Chazal also, Chazal also talked about a lot of um, Chazal's polemics were against uh, uh, what they call Shtereshios, this belief that there are like two gods or two powers, a good one and a bad one. You know, that is associated with Zoroastrianism. Rabag went back to Egypt. Um, and he's saying here, don't make a mistake and think that because I bring life and death, that there is a God of life and a God of death or a God of disease and a God of healing. No, I, God, am the cause of, of both of them. OK. And then in the other part of the Robox commentary, he elaborates. He says, um, I am he who is in one state without change. And it's for this reason that I established my word that I decreed. If you transgress my commandments and worship idolatry, and there's no God with me such that one causes evil and one good, for I am the one who kills and punishes, and I bring life to those who are on the brink of death in the lowest state. For this reason, when you are extremely prone to destruction, I will protect you from death. I will supervise you with my providence, my hajgacha, to save you from it. Likewise, I have stricken you with this wondrous harm that I have brought upon you, but my hands will heal you to restore you as you were in your land. From this, it is evident that no one can save from my hand. For if there were another God in such a manner that one caused bad and one caused good, then the good one could save you from the evil brought about by the doer of evil. Now, here's the key point. However, once it is clear to you that there is only one God and the good and bad are systematically arranged by him, which is my translation of mimenu misudar hatovahara, literally from him are ordered the good and bad, like arranged systematically, it will be clear to you that there is no savior from his hand and he does whatever he desires. So what do we see from here? Again, the phrase looks completely um, positive. But in the context, it's a double-edged sword, is Hashem is the cause of the good and the bad, death and life, disease and healing, but he doesn't change. Rather, we are the ones who change, and our fate is determined by the extent to which we follow his Torah and merit his Hashgaka. So in other words, if we don't follow Torah, so then we will be subject to all these diseases, just like it said in Shemos, just like it said in Kisavo, um, and just like it's saying here. And those diseases are coming from God in the sense that it's part of his system of hashgacha. It's part of his, his universe that there is good and there's bad. But if we align ourselves with his will and we follow his Torah, then even if we're at the lowest state of destruction, God will save us and protect us and bring healing and bring life. Okay. So now let's put it all together. Okay. Um, so remember, the, I think the, the analogy here is someone quoting a song lyric, is you're hearing it in the context that they're quoting it, but in the back of your mind, you're thinking of the original context. So when we say... What are we thinking of? We're thinking of Yumiahu Yud Zion. Heal us and save us from personal psychological suffering. Okay. So we're, again, we are asking for God to heal us. Don't get me wrong. Like, like it, when we say Rafa'inu Hashem, we are asking for actual healing. But what we're thinking about is the context of Yumiahu being verbally and socially abused and antagonized by his peers and suffering that degradation. Okay. Then when we say bring up a complete healing for all of our, our afflictions, we're thinking of Kla Yisrael as a community suffering from, again, psychological suffering of their allies have abandoned them because of the punishment brought about by their sins. Then when we say, God, you are a king who is a faithful healer and merciful, we think to ourselves, if we follow Hashem, then he will be faithful to heal us and protect us from the illness. If we don't follow Hashem, then we will be subject to faithful illnesses and suffering. So it really is a, it could be both. It could be either. And then we conclude with that same thing, but putting in the idea of, of Mikor HaBracha, that God is the source of all good. 
Hashem is the unchanging cause of illness and healing. Which one we receive is entirely dependent on, on our adherence to Hashem's Torah and, uh, and, and the degree to which we merit his hashgacha. Okay? So this is the undertone in Rafa'inu. And you'll notice, by the way, there is a sequencing to it. So when you say the pshat, like when you, before you knew these psukim, all you're thinking about basically is there's sickness in the world. I want God to remove the sickness. Okay, but then when you actually know the original psukim, so you start by thinking of Yumiahu's psychological suffering brought about by Klai Yisrael abusing him, okay, because of their refusal to accept his, his rebuke. Then the second passage brings you to focusing, okay, now let's focus on Klai Yisrael. Why did they, you know, they were suffering because they sinned, and that's why they were deserving rebuke. Then you go to the Jews when they first left Mitzrayim, and this trend that God tells us that if we are in line with his will, he'll bring healing. And if not, then, then we, he'll, bring, uh, he'll bring suffering. And so in other words, it was not just the Jews in Yirmiyahu's time. This is a trend of the Hashgacha, of God's providence. And then you conclude with recognizing that vis-a-vis God's unchanging nature, don't think that illness comes from another God. Don't think that God changes. God's unchanging, we change. And depending on how we act, then we either deserve uh, uh, healing or, uh, or, or sickness. Okay. So that's the full picture. But the question remains, okay, uh, unless there are any questions on this so far. We have one more step, which is how to basically, like, apply this to our tefillah. I, uh, just uh, my, my phone had died. There's a, a bracha in uh, the Haftorah. Uh, in Berachas Haftorah. Yeah. E-K-L Melech Ne'amon Otay. And it doesn't say Rofei over there. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so I should, I should check that out. Yeah, yeah. My question was m- much more on like malchus in relation to rafua, because uh, those are typically not, you know, your doctor is not typically your king, you know, unless you treat Fauci as the as the real king. Uh, but that's I, I, I understand. It could be yeah. it could be that Melech and that one really go together. And if you're studying the bracha and oh, I see what you're saying. How does Rofei fit in? Right. Okay, that's a good move. That's a good move. Yeah, that's that's definitely possible. Okay. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the source of this is. So you know. Right. Well, I can look up in the Rebar Yakar and see what he says. Uh, good, good, uh, good. Sarkian. Okay. So here's our final question, which I'd like to try to address here. Okay. Which is, um, in light of the aforementioned definitions of tefillah, okay, which we gave at the very beginning, how does this new insight based on the Pesukim help us to, and I'm going to plug in both definitions of tefillah here, either judge ourselves in Hashem's framework or, and clarify our confused thoughts, transform ourselves and become worthy for his hashgacha, for God's providence. In other words, remember, tefillah only works because you use tefillah to change yourself. So it's very nice that we have all these psukim, but how am I supposed to translate that into something that will make my recitation of Rafa'inu into a transformative experience? Okay. Now, this is somewhat a personal question based on where you're at and what you've learned and how you frame things. Um, I'm going to share with you one approach. Okay. This, I don't claim that this is like the shot or like this is the only thing. This is, excuse me, this is what I did with this in my own learning. It's hard to um, say that there's a parak in the Mornavukim that's more important than others. Um, I can say that this is the parak I think about the most. Okay. Uh, and I recommend that anyone who has the, the time uh, read this through. It's, it's, it's very easy to read. Uh, it's in the Ramam's discussions leading up to his explanation of Eov, okay? And this is when he, uh, he classifies the three types of Ra in the universe. Now, Ra, I'm deliberately not translating here. Ra is any form of badness. So you can translate as evil, 
you know, moral corrupted, you know, being morally corrupt, uh, physical degradation, rotting, you know, decay, anything that is bad, harm, you know, anything like that. Okay, so there are only three types of rot in the universe, okay? Type one is, he says, it's the raw that comes about because of the nature of physical matter, which is subject to destruction, defect, and entropy. Okay, so basically, we are in a physical universe. God himself, obviously, is not limited because he's not physical, but physical things, by their very nature, are limited. That's what it means to be physical, okay? Um, so uh, to be physical is to be limited, and everything in the physical world has these limitations, okay? So you, you once you're in a physical universe, then, then you're subject to these things, okay? And the Raman also adds an important point here is if you want to be physical uh, and impervious to harm, then you're wishing for the impossible. You, you cannot be a physical being and also impervious to this kind of harm. Okay, it's inescapable. And the, the Rama mentions that this type of Ra is necessary because we're in a physical universe, but it's relatively rare. And but what he means by relatively rare is you see that all the systems of the universe function in, uh, you know, function smoothly. And you know, let's say, let's take like uh, the human body, right? Is the human body functions properly more often than it functions abnormally, you know, or there are more, there are far fewer birth defects than birth, you know, than, than uh, normal births. Okay. Um, so this one is a relatively rare. Okay. And he says, and if you look outside of the plant of uh, the human sphere, then it's even, or certainly outside of the, the terrestrial sphere, then it's, it's, it's even rarer. Like, you know, in the planets and the stars and the, and the heavenly bodies, then you'll find this uh, very, very minute. Okay. Second type of raw is the raw that people inflict upon each other through their own free will. Okay, uh, this type of Ra uh, originates in ignorance. Uh, Rama has a, the prior chapter dependent on, uh, is about that is he maintains that anytime a person harms another person, it's because they're lacking ignorance of, of what is the true good, okay? And he says it's also relatively rare. And again, like it's easy to look at the world and get depressed, but like, you know, you look at the crime rates in any given city. The crime rates are always lower than the non-crime rates. There are more people who are non-criminals than criminals. You know, there are more people who are engaged in, uh, in who are not engaged in abuse than are engaged in abuse. There are more people who are, you know, uh, like, you know, fewer people who are tyrants than people who are not tyrants, you know. Um, so he says that this is also relatively rare. Okay. The third kind is the kind of raw that people inflict on themselves. So this also originates in ignorance. And the Ram talks about this at length. Uh, it's the most prevalent form of Ra and comes about due to people seeking that which they do not need uh, or seeking things that in unintelligent and or short-sighted ways. So he gives a bunch of examples. Uh, if you, uh, you know, he says like the more necessary something is the more abundant it is. So air is very necessary. Can't live without it. It's very abundant. Water is not as necessary as air, but it is necessary. So you've got a lot of water. Food is not as necessary as water, but there's ample food. And you keep going down, but then you get to certain things like, uh, Silver and gold are very rare because they're not very necessary, you know, or he says uh, emeralds or musk. I don't know what they used musk for back then, but he says, if you are the type of person who basically feels like I need musk, like I, I just need musk. And if I don't get musk, then this is a horrible uh, injustice, you know, so then uh, then you are really inflicting that suffering upon yourself. OK, um, similarly, the seeking things in unintelligent and short sighted ways. Um, the example I give based on the raw bog on EO, he gives this amusing example. I embellish it a little bit, but he says basically like, let's say, let's say you want a yacht. Okay. Uh, now yachts are also superfluous. You don't need yachts. Okay. But let's say you really want a yacht. So you take your shovel, you go into your backyard. Oop. Hold on. Uh, can you guys hear me still? My, my thing went out. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. Let's say you, um, you, uh, what do you call it? You take your shovel, you go out into your backyard, 
and you're like, okay, I, I want a yacht. So you start digging, okay? And you dig up uh, like a, uh, you dig uh, like a five foot hole in the ground and you're like, nope, no yacht. So you go to another place in your yard and you start digging there also. And you spend, you spend weeks digging up your entire yard and there's no yacht. And then you get angry at God and say, how dare, you know, God not provide me with a yacht, okay? And destroy my yard. Well, you know, you're doing two things that are dumb. Number one, you're, you're looking for a yacht in a way that you don't, <laughs> you don't find yachts. Number two, you are looking for something you don't need. And number three, you're blaming God when this is all on you, okay? And that's basically what people do with themselves in life. You know, people seeking celebrity status, people seeking a certain degree of wealth, people seeking universal love, people seeking, basically this is all safer Kohalas, okay? Is seeking things that you can't have and feeling that you can't be happy without them. Um, and that's what people inflict on themselves. Now, when the Rama goes through these three types of Ra, he basically is showing that really, you know, categories two and three come entirely from human beings. Um, and that's by virtue of the fact that we have free will and we can choose to either pursue knowledge or not. And then type one comes indirectly from God, but only because he created a physical universe. And if you want to be physical and not be subject to physical raw, then you're just wishing for the impossible. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Okay. Now, what does this have to do with our, with our bracha? Okay. So this is uh, my answer to the question. This will be the last point. Okay. So again, we're trying to figure out how can we take these insights from Rufa'inu and apply this to uh, to transform ourselves to be worthy of God's hashgacha. So I think that what th these psukim allow us to do is to reframe the Ra of illness in a manner which is in line with reality, not in line with our fantasy imaginations. And by highlighting our role and our agency in our suffering and in our healing. In other words, if you have these ideas from the psukim in mind, as you say Rufa'inu, so instead of being the infantile kid making the wish on a birthday candle saying, God, like you, you, you're making me suffer. I want you to heal me. So what you're doing is you're going to be thinking about, okay, what exactly is the nature of the raw of illness and what is my role in it? Okay. So let's go through this bit by bit, just to understand. So let's, we're going to go with the, with the most prevalent type. Okay. Is self-inflicted raw. Okay, so you, you'll notice that the first two psukim are only about psychological suffering, okay? And I don't know if this is what the Anshikanesis Haggadol had in, in, in mind, or if this is just the truth. Most suffering that we experience is psychological, okay? Yes, we, we do feel physical pain, but the suffering is psychological. Now, um, again, this is an entire other topic uh, that intersects with other areas in Judaism of, of like Vitachon and other things like that. But I'm gonna, I, I, I opted for just... Um, Oh, sorry. You know, I forgot I listed this first. We'll, we'll go through each of these in, in depth. Okay. Uh, I'll go back to A. Hold, hold, hold on for just one second. Number two, most illness is called, caused by our own bad decision making. Okay. Now, people can react and say, like, what do you mean? Like, like, you know, are you telling me that like so-and-so gets cancer, that's their fault? No, I'm not saying that. But look at like, <laughs> look at how we take care of ourselves and don't take care of ourselves. I mean, so many illnesses, I mean, in America, when we have knowledge of science, so many of our illnesses come from the fact that we overeat, we don't exercise, we don't get the right amount of sleep, we put psychological uh, 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 stress on ourselves, um, we, uh, we, we uh, you know, uh, expose ourselves to uh, dangerous um, circumstances, you know, and, and, and it ultimately is traceable down to us. So yes, when, when the person who's a certain age gets a heart attack, they did not bring about that instance of heart attack, but, but it, in many cases, again, not all cases, but in many cases, there are, uh, you know, it, it's their own decision-making that led up to it. Um, uh, and this is certainly true in, in the days of the Rambam when we, we had even less uh, knowledge of medicine. Um, and point C is what all the psukim were identifying is at the end of the day, 
we are subject to illness to the extent that we don't follow God's will. It's, we do not, like, we've been talking about this all of Corona, you know, for, for all of the pandemic is like, you know, we hold by reward and punishment. We hold by scarf owners. We hold by, by, uh, you know, uh, by Hashgaga. Like, like, and if we don't uh, align ourselves with God's will, then we will, um, will be subject to illness. And if we do align ourselves with God's will, then he'll protect us. So that's part of the brachos. Now going to A for a second, because I think that's the one that's most challenged. Um, just a few good quotations. Again, these are not proofs. Just I wanted to highlight what I mean by suffering is, uh, is psychological. So uh, Epictetus is one of my favorite Stoic writers. Uh, the Sto- whole Stoic foundation, which is also the foundation of Mishle, it is not circumstances themselves that trouble people, but their judgments about those circumstances. Again, if you're interested in elaboration on this, I, re- I recently went through the Shara Bitachon in, uh, in um, Chobos Halababos, and he, especially at the end, uh, really highlights this idea. Um, you have Viktor Frankl, who was in horrific uh, suffering in the concentration camps. Uh, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. Um, you are choosing, you can't choose your physical environment, but you can choose you can make choices that are conducive to suffering or choices that are not. Uh, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. You know, um, actually, a recent example of this, when, when uh, on, uh, what day was it? On Thursday, when uh, we had the Shiva call with Rabbi Friedman, and he was talking about his mother, uh, Allah Shalom, in, uh, in Auschwitz. Um, then he was saying how, like, he can't fathom how... Oops, someone unmuted. Someone unmuted. Oh, there we go. Um, what do you call it? So he was talking about how his mother was a teenager when she went to Auschwitz and for, and she was in camps, or sorry, when she was in camps and she was in camps for six years in the most horrific suffering. And you look at, I'm not, I'm not blaming kids nowadays, but like you look at the way kids are coping with the pandemic. Like it doesn't compare, like they think they're suffering, but you can have someone who lives through hell and, and like, and, and is fine if you can't find, you can't go outside for 70 days. Okay, like, but you have food and you have like no one beating you up and all this. Like, you know, a lot of suffering is in our mind uh, and, 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 and is in our control. This is also the foundation of cognitive behavior therapy. And then one more quotation, which I, when I was going over this with my Chavrusa, Rindi, he quoted the classic, uh, I don't know if it's in the period of the Onim or the Rishonim, but uh, G.I. Jane uh, with Demi Moore. Um, I don't know who, I've never seen the movie. I don't know who says this, but uh, she's uh, someone, I don't even know if it's her. She says, or he, he says, I never saw a wild thing sorry for itself. A bird will fall frozen dead from a bow without ever having felt sorry for itself, which is highlighting the idea that a lot of our suffering comes from feelings of victimization and blaming God or blaming like the universe is out to get me or taking it personally. And animals feel pain, but not psychological suffering. They don't have a narrative that they weave around themselves, which amplifies their pain, you know, and a lot of our pain is due to that. So, um, oh, and by the way, just to show, I don't know if you're going to accept this as a Raya, okay, um, but just to show how essential the ideas of suffering and not illness being the, the centerpiece of Rafa Enu, uh, here's a trivia question. What is the most authoritative commentary on Shimona Esrei? Answer is the Bracha of Havinenu, okay? So the Anche Knesset Hagdola wrote the Shimona Esrei, but they also wrote an abridged Shimona Esrei where these same people who wrote the text summarize each bracha into one line or one phrase. Okay, so for example, grants us understanding of Hashem our God to know your ways. That's a summary of the entire bracha of Atahonin Ladam Da'as. Circumcise our hearts for your fear. That's a summary of uh, the bracha of Tshuva. Summary of Slicha. Leo's Geulim, summary of Goel Yisrael. Now, you see I blanked out here, okay? What would you guess 
the summary, the, the two or three word summary would be of Rufaino. Well, you would probably think it says something like heal us or remove our illness, right? Because Rufaino Hashem Venei it could just be that, right? No, it's not. You know what the summary is? Rachakinu mi machov, distance us from suffering. Okay, and machov is is used. I mean, sometimes it's used for physical suffering, but it's also used um, uh, for uh, for psychological suffering. Like it's, I'm, I'm, I forgot to incorporate the puzzle into the PowerPoint, but the kiadati um, machovav, when God is talking about Bnei Israel and Mitzrayim, on the side, I'm, I'm getting several puzzles mixed up. There's a puzzle about the psychological suffering that the Egyptians were uh, inflicting on the Jews, and it's clear from that context that it's psychological. But the point is, it doesn't just say heal us from our illnesses. It's, it's emphasizing the suffering. Okay. So again, type three, m- much of our suffering is psychological, either because of the narrative we weave around it, or our own bad decision making, or the fact that we're not following mitzvahs. Okay. Type two, caused by others. So this, I, I said, it amplifies A, B, and C. So for example, let's say like the narratives that we weave about our own suffering are, 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 are largely due to our society as well. Is like, let's say like in the olden days when death was all around people, people felt death in a different way. Like if, if you were in a period where, you know, uh, a mother could give birth to 10 kids and, and, and eight of them would die. So then she would relate to the death of a newborn child very, very differently than a mother who relates to it now. You know, both are tragedies, but the narrative from the society is a big determinant in how much you suffer. Um, most illnesses caused by your own bad decision making. Uh, it's also a lot of the times caused by other people doing things which make us sick. You know, whether you're talking about, let's say, like, you know, America's uh, emphasis on high fructose corn syrup and uh, and, and uh, excess high carb, large portion diets, or whether you're talking about, let's say, like in the um, uh, the coronavirus and the pandemic. I mean, you think to yourself. How many people would have actually gotten sick from patient one? if China made the correct decisions and if all the countries in Europe and around the world made the right decisions and we all took safety precaution measures and all this other stuff, very, very little suffering, you know, it's really, a lot of it is spread by other people, you know, uh, also, you know, talking about like whatever you hold about healthcare, everyone would acknowledge that there are, are, are ways to improve it and good, you know, things that could be done, good uses of our resources, bad uses of our resources, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates donating lots of money to cure malaria and other diseases. That's pretty good. Why haven't other people done that? You know, like um, that it's, you know, so a lot of this illness is brought about by how we treat our fellow man. And then type one the, is, is part of the universe. It's not our fault, but we have to recognize like the world bog said, illness is part of the universe. And God, what does God say about the universe? We are looking as kosher tov ma'od. And Rabbi Meir and the Gemara, I forgot what the Gemara is, says, Tov Ma'od, what does that refer to, is even death is a good. And death here includes all, uh, you know, this category, this type one, this, ent- you know, entropy, illness, sickness, material degradation. And the more you understand the nature of the physical world, the world, the more you realize how it is necessary that this is the case in order to have the world that we have. And, um, and you realize the goodness of the, of the universe as a whole. So what are we doing again? How do we have better kavanah and rifa'enu? Is when you say rifa'enu and you're thinking about those psukim that talk about Yirmiyahu's psychological suffering and Claudius's psychological suffering and the dependency of our suffering on Torah and mitzvos and how we treat our fellow man, how we treat, you know, how we make decisions based on, for ourselves, and that last puzzle about how sickness is not something that 
comes from another force in the universe. It comes from God. It's part of the, the physical universe. When you think about all these things, you can then use your tefillah to reframe your, to judge yourself, to put yourself more in line with reality, to change your actions so that when you're asking Hashem to heal you, you're really using this as impetus, like the Siddur HaTefillah uh, said, to perfect yourself and become worthy of receiving God's goodness by not engaging in, in, in actions that contribute to your own sickness and not embracing fantasy-based, uh, imagination-based mentalities that increase your suffering and not treating, not contributing to a society in which people suffer uh, illness because of the decisions people make. You're actually using tefillah to accomplish this. And if all of Kuala Israel is using this, then we really are, the tefillah itself will bring about the healing. And that's the idea. Again, make your will like God's will, and he will do His your will like his will. If you align yourself with God's will as expressed here, you will have your tefillah answered. Now, uh, Last slide, just a summary of all of our points, then I'll take questions and, 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 and the year's over. Four takeaways. Takeaway one, the definition of tefillah, is you're clarifying your own thoughts, changing yourself to be in line with reality, making you ready to receive God's goodness. Okay, you're changing yourself, you're not changing God. Two, the m method, especially with mikra, understand the source psukim in the original context. That'll shed light on the meaning of the tefillah. Three, when you understand the source psukim of Rafa'inu, so, and you say Rafa'inu, and, 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 you know, I, tell me if, if, if you find that this works, you know, when you have Mincha today, as you say it, just say it a little bit slower, and as you say it, just think about the psukim, remember, like a song lyric being quoted in a speech, let it, like, play in the back of your mind, where you're saying what you usually mean, but letting the connotations and the themes and the implications wash over you, and you'll realize in order for God to heal me, I have to actually acknowledge my own agency in the illness that I suffer and am prone to and take steps to change myself. That will actually be what it takes to get God to, to get God to, uh, to respond to my tefillah. And then the last thing is hopefully again, not only in the tefillah, but this will actually saying this and thinking these thoughts three times a day or two times a day or however much you daven will, will, actually change the way that you live. It will actually change the way you experience the world. Remember, this is why Chazal or the uh, Hasidim Harishonim, the original uh, pious you know, members of Chazal, would wait an hour before davening, thinking about these ideas. Then they would daven for an hour, really going through thinking about ideas like this. And then they would sit for an hour after davening. And that's always the hardest one to understand is the question is, since tefillah is transforming you, what are you going to do to retain the insights that you got from your tefillah session and actually live differently in a way that causes you to be a recipient of God's goodness. And that's the real key of tefillah. And that's how tefillah actually like has a beneficial effect. So um, whether you buy these ideas in particular, I hope that you at least got something in terms of the approach. And it's a great thing to do if you want a chavrusa and tefillah, if you want to learn tefillah on your own, like figure this out. I mean, it's, a, it, it's, it's, I think it, that itself, the effort to figure it out itself will change your kavana in tefillah because you'll be going through this process of arriving at your own understanding of what you're saying. And like, like, uh, like I remember Robbie Schwartz once said, uh, in, in, in my yeshiva days that like, you'll know that it's right. I think maybe it was quoting Rebbe that like lines start lighting up along the way. And that's how like I view my sitter is like, you know, every time I learn a tefillah on this level. So the text of the, of, of the sitter is like dark. And then like that line lights up and then that line lights up and then that light lines up. And then when I dive in, if I'm, if I have the correct like peace of mind, I can actively review the ideas and let them affect me 
uh, because I've gone through the groundwork in preparing for it. So hopefully uh, we all go on to understand our tefillos better. And uh, I guess I'll take any questions that people have. Uh, Matt? Uh, yeah. Hi. Um, hi. So, so, so just a question. So, so it sounds like within this uh, method in um, uh, saying Rafaino, it's almost like it's, it's obviously it's to perfect you and, you know, to get the, you know, the right idea and, and to put you in the right psychological framework, which will, it sounds like it will inevitably heal you. Right. Or at the very least, it will, it will, I'll just clarify that for one second uh, before you finish your question. It will simultaneously help you to not suffer from whichever diseases you do get. That's from dealing with these types of raw especially type uh, three, uh, self-inflicted, and it will increase your worthiness for hajgaka, which we do believe is reality, you know, uh, and, and, and you will merit to actually have divine assistance and be pre- protected from, from illness. Right. Like if, you, if, you ha- if you're in the right framework, it, you will just naturally fall into, you know, the right place. Um, mm-hmm. So, so right. my, my, uh, so my question is, um, but what about, you know, like people who do actually get sick, Right. Uh, maybe I'm, you probably just say that, but I don't, I don't, I didn't really understand that part. Many people who do it, like have sick, we do still have this idea, you know, God heal me. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the answer to that question, hold on just a second. I just got to get a quote. I'll be right back. Okay. Take your time. There's this great quote uh, in this new cookbook I got uh, that says, uh, when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. And I find that anytime you're dealing with any area of Hajgaka, that's the problem. Okay. In other words, Hajgaka and how God runs the universe and, and reward and punishment and God's justice are extremely complicated, broad and deep areas. And clearly there are many, many other factors at play. For example, like again, in this pandemic, we've had Shirim talking about you know, you have a principle of Hashgah, uh, once a, a, a destroyer is unleashed, it doesn't distinguish between Tzadik and Russia. So a, a complete Tzadik could, could be subject to a, an epidemic. You know, that's, that's one thing. You know, you have other ideas of in Eov of like, you know, why Tzadikim suffer. And so it, it's, I'm not, I'm, I, I, I don't think you can use this one idea to answer every case. And in fact, I don't even think that's the purpose of Tefillah. The purpose is not to, exp- you don't, learn tefillah to answer questions about God's justice. You learn tefillah to change the way you relate to reality and control what's in your control, what's in your power. So I think that's like the proper address of the idea. And the question you're asking is a good one, but that's like the whole study of Hajgaha. Okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, yeah. Okay. Can I ask a second question after Ezra? Sure. Oh, you can go first, Um Okay, sure, I'll go first. Um, so my question is, can you, can you um, explain a little bit more about what you said with the in- individual who lived through uh, the Holocaust versus now? Meaning, like, is there an objective idea of how you should relate to Rafaino, or, or it's just subjective, meaning in every era we, we find our own challenges within our own society? Yeah, so I mean, that, that. yeah, it's, it's very, I mean, it, it's, there are universals, you know, um, in terms of how you relate to the physical world, how you relate to, to things outside of your control. You know, again, Michelet deals with this a lot. Kohelis deals with this a lot. 
but then ultimately it's going to be dependent on your particular circumstances and how you, how you cope with them, you know? And like, I remember just speaking of the Holocaust thing, I remember another uh, Holocaust story that there was a woman who arrived at the camps. They were getting in line to get their tattoos. And she said, I'm going to try to find the most mockpid, like the most uh, neurotically perfectionist Nazi possible and get the best, most perfect tattoo that I can. And someone was like, insane woman, like, what are you doing? And her life philosophy, as explained by, I don't even know where the story came from. The life, her life philosophy was like, in every situation, there are things that are in your control and things that are not. And I'm going to find, you know, a mission. I'm going to find meaning. I'm going to find some decision I can make in my control and, and, and not focus on stuff that's not in my control. And that actually helped her cope with the Holocaust going through all of the stuff that she can't control. Again, that Viktor Frankl himself did that. Like his, you know, his thesis was destroyed by the Nazis and like he realizes, you know, he was depressed, but then he realizes he's in this concentration camp, the greatest lab of real world examples of human suffering. And he can come up with, you, he can look at this through his, his uh, psychologist perspective and like arrive at new insights. And that helped him get through, through the war, you know? So it, it ultimately is going to depend on your own circumstances and how well you can apply those universals to your particulars. Uh, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, I, I guess Ezra, go ahead. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, so, I mean, I could extrapolate to this particular, but um, what is what is the way to like um, dive in for someone else? A lot of times you add yeah. a name into your tefillah. Um, people are yeah. size yourself. Right. So this is my understanding, okay. Um, and uh like i don't uh, this I, I i don't know for sure so this is a tentative so again we maintain i i uh, okay there's two levels of god answering to be long okay there's what we've been talking about today where you change yourself and mimela automatically then you receive a different treatment so to speak by god based on the way he designed the world then we have hashgaka pratis as a reality that god intervenes in the laws of nature uh, uh, based on your closeness to him. And, and, you know, so I think that everything we've said today only applies to your own relationship with sickness. But when you dive in for someone else, there you are actually asking for God to, uh, to intervene and help that person. I don't think that these ideas can transfer to, excuse me, to healing for other people, except in the sense that it does change the way that you, that you interact, you know, um, with other people and then that can help them. For example, like this is going to sound like a stretch, but like it, I mean, it, it's an example of how Tefillah has already changed me is like um, uh, when I was learning this with, with David Rindy and we talked about Yirmiyahu feeling socially isolated by uh, everyone being against him and that being the ma the true maka, the true affliction, Rindy said, that is why Bikr Holim is so important. You know, Bikr Holim is a mitzvah where we go and we visit people who are sick and by bringing them social friendship and comfort and warmth and assistance, we alleviate their suffering physically and psychologically, you know? So I can see how a person who, who davens this way, you know, and, and thinks about these ideas, it can affect the way that they go out and interact with the world that can actually affect other people. But again, I think at the end of the day, when you put in a name in your tefillah, I think that is actually asking for God to intervene. I don't think that's going to be uh, affected through this. Now, Doing this will raise you and make you more worthy for the Hashgacha, but there's no direct connection. Okay, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Matt? Yeah, Robbie? 
Yeah. Okay. So I appreciate you quoting me. I don't remember having said that, but uh, it gives me something to think about. Um, I have two points I wanted to make, a comment and a question, if you would. Um, in terms of Kikel Melech Nemon, I was thinking that Kel refers to the fact, to God's omnipotence, God's power. Right. And a Melech is charged with, a Melech is charged with the better, uh, you know, seeing to the best welfare of the people. Yeah. So we're referring to God yeah. as the power, and then he's the Melech Nemon, with Melech Rofe Nemon. That's he, interesting. He uses that power to our best benefit. Right. That is, so that, that, that is, Nemon and that's good. That's a good idea. And in fact, actually, I'm thinking to myself now, you sparked another thought, which is that uh, Kel is also a Midas Hadin, you know, uh, reference, right, is strict justice, whereas Melech can go both ways. You could have the king, the punitive king who uh, exacts, you know, enacts justice, and then you could have the, uh, the you know, the merciful king. So so maybe, maybe that's a similar line of thinking. I understand, but I'm referring to God as just the, the king who completes his ultimate nature, which is to be a true melech, which right. is to work for our best welfare. Right, right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And then you okay. had a question you said? Yeah, having said that, okay, I have a question. That is that you're basically saying that Birkas Rifa Enu uh, refers more to the philosophical state of the soul and how we can heal that, much more so than just the original notion that we had um, which you've done a good job of exploding, by the way, that it just is <laughs> our, physical, uh, our physical health. Yeah, yeah, I, I, okay. I, I, right, I, I think so. And I, again, I think that the, um, if I can just really quickly grab, um, uh, I just got to find where it is, hold on. Um, wait, just one second here. Oh, yeah, yeah. so you know, I mentioned that Rebbein Bachia uh, in Bitachon. So at the very end of the Shar Bitachon, he has, um, 10 levels of bitachon, okay? And he goes through, like, of trust in God, reliance on God. The ninth level, second highest level, says like this. When a person's conception of God matures further, with an appreciation of God's concern for his creatures, he will accept in his heart and with his tongue, outwardly and inwardly, whatever God decrees for him. He will be happy with whatever God brings him, whether death or life, poverty or wealth, health or illness. He will not long for anything that God has not chosen for him and will want only what God wants for him. He will be completely devoted to God and will surrender his soul and body to his judgment, to God's judgment. In other words, in, sorry, in worldly matters, he will not prefer one condition over another, nor desire to be in any condition other than the one he is in. As one of the devotees of trust said, I never woke up in one condition and longed to be in another. Now, again, Bitakon is a whole separate topic and like how we make sense of that is a big thing. But my point is, is that this person who's on the second to the highest level of Bitakon is accepting the fact that he's in a state of sickness, you know, even if he's in a state of sickness. So when he davens, I have to imagine that what is he doing is he's trying to properly frame the way he experiences the sickness to alleviate the suffering, because he still doesn't want to suffer. Like, he, he just is accepting that I cannot change the condition I'm in externally, you know, but I can change the way I frame it and accept it with simcha, you know, like the type of person who could say, Baruch Dayan HaEmes, in joy, even though it's a bad thing, and, and simultaneously realize that. So yes, it's a much more mature way of relating to it, and I think that it's natural that we start off on the more immature spectrum of like, you know, you know, like just God take away my physical illness, and then as you mature, you realize how much more is in your control, what the role of sickness is in the world, how much is dependent on like the way you, you know, take care of your your own health, and so on, and so it, it matures as you develop. Okay, so can I get to my question? Oh, sorry. My question I, yeah. is like this. 
yeah, yeah go ahead. my question is that given that um, um, uh, Rifa'inu refers much more than just to a, the, a, our physical uh, well-being, but more so to the well-being of our soul, um, how we referred earlier to the fact that the Gemara Megillah discusses the Seder Abrachos, the order in which the Abrachos are presented to us. And I was thinking that um, after Atachonim, which is, of course, a general request for knowledge, you have a request for Tshuva, Slicha, Geula, and then Rifa'enu. And yeah. in, the, in terms of the way you're categorizing and defining what, what Rifa'enu was referring to here, wouldn't it more appropriately be placed as the first of this series of four brachos? Right. Uh, so, so that Gemara that was mentioned by someone earlier the, um, in Megillah, that goes through the order. Um, my, I, I have a, a Chavrusa that I was working on that with, um, and we have not yet merged the two, meaning we haven't yet, we haven't completed that Gemara and then seen how those ideas interact with these ideas. So I can mm-hmm. let you know when we get there, uh, but that's, that's where you would find an answer is like in that Gemara. And it's also possible that the sequencing is a separate layer of ideas than the, that's not directly dictated by the content. For example, they say that in that Gemara, that they put Geula seventh because seven is associated with Geula, not because of the logical order of what makes most sense to go first and second, you know, like it, it, based on the content. So I, 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 that's a start for you and also, I don't know the answer to that. I hear. Okay. Just yeah. wanted to ask. Yeah. Good question though. Yeah. Think about. Okay. Thank you. Yep. So Rabbi Schneeweiss. Yes. So if I remember the Gemara correctly, it says that um, when we add another person's, name in Artfila that in in consequence of that Artfila becomes answered. Right. Right. And the yeah. reason why they say that is by Rafaino is because we recognize that we are no more we have no more zechus than another Bria of a Kaddish Barho. Right. And recognizing that we're just another Bria helps put ourselves in the pop. Right. That's Hunter. a good it's a good, good, uh, good supplement to this idea. Yeah, that, that you definitely see how that's the case. Yeah, even that, even, and that's something that's a good example, Leslie, because like a person can, you know, there's certain mitzvahs that you only get the perfection of if you know the idea. For example, if you don't know what's in the mezuzah, then it will do zero for you, you know. But there are other mitzvahs, let's say like when you give tzedakah, you might not be a philosopher, but the act of parting with your money itself breaks the attachment to money. It, it, it acknowledges that there are other people with needs, you know, even if you do it mindlessly. And I feel like, you know, a lot of people when they're davening Shimon Esrei and they know that, that they know that statement, they'll put in someone else's name, almost like a, like a trick that they're like tricking God to like, uh, you know, like, Oh, I'm, this is the way I really get healed. You know, now it's obviously bad to think that you're tricking God, but the act of thinking of someone else before you think of yourself, I think does have a proper psychological effect on the way you relate to others even if you're not a philosopher when you do that, you know? So I think the fact that the world knows this, this, uh, that Chazal and like does it, I think is a good thing. A minute ago, you just mentioned like the, you just went through the timeline of what happens when a person, you know, starts off with this thought and then moves to this thought. thought. Can you just say that again as a, as a summary? Uh, Yeah. Um, Meaning I think when we first, you know, start davening, we are entirely in the the mode of physical illness is bad. It's a bad thing that happens to me. And I ask God to remove it. Like that's, I think, the minimal kavana that people have in, uh, in Rufa'ino. You know, no thought whatsoever to 
what is illness, no thought whatsoever to why illness is bad or what causes their pain, and no thought whatsoever about the fact that God created illness, you know? So, like, it's just very, like, I don't like being sick. I don't want to be sick. God make me not sick, you know? Um, and then as you go on, you start to realize, and I, I don't think there's a set. This is not, like, you know, developmental stages, like, of Piaget. Like, I don't think there's, like, a, a set development. But I think you start to then, you know, as you know these psukim, you start to realize, okay, well, a lot of my suffering is psychological. It's not the physical because I know that there are people there's a whole, I mean, there's, look, there's a whole genre of YouTube videos of people who are suffering from the most horrible physical ailments and they're happy, you know, because of their way that they're psychologically framing things and because of their philosophy, you know? So you start to realize like, Oh, you know, maybe if I change my mentality, I still want the illness to be, to be taken away. But like, maybe I, if it's not taken away, I can like, then I can, I can alleviate the suffering by reframing things, you know? And then you start thinking of, well, you know, I'm asking, I'm sitting here asking God to, to heal me and I'm eating unhealthily. Like, and I'm just, you know, and my doctor's telling me that I'm, uh, my blood pressure is too high and like, I'm not exercising enough. Maybe I'm a little bit hypocritical. Like, like, how can I ask, like, God set up the body in a certain way and gave me a telemelochim to be able to figure out, you know, what to do and what not to do and it gave me self-control. And I'm just not using it and just saying, okay, yeah, God, you take care of it. I really need to be the active party here. So then you start taking care of your health and then you start realizing like, like, the way we as a society relate to health is very, very uh, messed up, you know, in all these ways. So, and then as you go, then you start to, the emphasis comes much more on lahis palel as an action you're doing to yourself so that you are a recipient of God's goodness that's always waiting to, to, to come to you and less about like you ordering God around like a butler. So I, I answer your question. I don't think it's a distinct like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight stages pattern, but but it's uh, it's it's whatever ideas the person is developmentally ready for, those will start lighting up and uh, and and changing things. And it's also like a, uh, I feel like it's one of these things like Habal Masino, so that the more you embrace the truth and and uh, then the more insights you'll have, and it feeds on itself in a positive feedback loop. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Um, can you explain a little bit more about why um, illness is is a is a part of the bria that that uh, that's a necessary and even can, can be considered a good thing? Yeah. So I I can't. I'm not the best person to do this because I'm not a medical student, you know, but or a doctor. But um, I, I think there is a uh, a default setting in humanity where when we didn't know anything about medicine, we just assumed that it's like purposeless evil, you know. And then I think the more we realize how the body works what health is, what illness is, the reality of ecosystems, the reality of like the immune system and all this other stuff, the more we start to realize what the purpose of things are. So let me give like two innocuous examples. Let's say like, um, and I don't know what I'm talking about here. So if anyone knows the actual medical facts, like I'm just going to speak as a lay person, but like, um, a, you know, a lot of allergic reactions are a symptom of the body's immune system doing its job, but because something goes like, you know, uh, awry or abnormal, so then you'll have an allergic, you know, reaction and, um, and, uh, and it'll cause you suffering, but it's not bad. It's the body doing what it's supposed to do that results in, in, in some sort of pain or discomfort, or let's say a, a bigger example, like, again, I'm a lay person, I'm not a doctor, but from what I understand, one of the reasons why we get a fever when we're sick is what the, when the body raises its own temperature, then it will, uh, it makes, 
you know, that's conducive to killing off, I don't know, certain pathogens or certain like regulating certain bodily processes. And that's part of how God designed the body. That's God being a rophate. Now, let's say you have a tragic case where a, a, a baby gets a fever and dies. Now, it's very easy to look at that and say, that was evil. But when you realize what fever is in the, the universe and how fevers are good by and large, but due to particular material circumstances, if you, uh, if the baby is like slightly underweight or if they're slightly malnourished or these other things, so then you can have pain or even real harm, but the phenomenon itself is good. Um, and I, I, I have a feeling that the more, you know, just like the more science progresses in any area, the more we realize how everything is necessary and everything is with Chachmah, the more we'll realize that about sickness and health. Like, you know, when we didn't know about, um, you know, mutations, cell mutations and evolution and all this other stuff. So then cancer just looked like a completely bad, evil, purposeless thing. But then when we realize, like, again, I don't know what I'm talking about here, but how cells operate and how cells need to operate in such ways to be able to perpetuate all species of living organisms in ways that are conducive to their growth and development. And because of the ways that there are random mutations that are sometimes advantageous and sometimes not because they're random, then that can result in like, you know, disadvantageous things or in diseases, then you realize like, yes, it's bad for this person or this individual or this particular, but as a whole, it's good. And I think that the more knowledge humankind gets, the more we'll realize, you know, um, how everything is tov ma'od, even though there is a presence of Ra due to the nature of physical matter. So the answer is I can't explain particulars, but that's the dera. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, I guess if there are no other questions, then uh, I guess that'll be it. Feel free to email me if you have follow-up questions. Thank you all for, for coming. This is, uh, uh, I hope this was as beneficial for you as it was for me. And, uh, yeah. and let, me know, let, let me know when you dive in Rafaino, like uh, if you have insights, because I think, again, in my five M's, you know, the last M is personal meaning. And like, when you say a good tefillah with good kavana, it could hit you once and then you could tap into that sometimes on purpose, sometimes by accident later on. And like, if you have a flash of insight, like I would like to take that and add to my collection, you know, because it could help me in my comment also. So. Rabbi Schneeweiss? Yes. Uh, the question I asked you earlier, you said you might want to come back to. Oh, yeah. Oh. Just remind me what your question was. It says, Ken Yeshem Rofecho, but that sounds like it's, um, the context of the Pasuk sounds, sounds pre-disease. Like we're not, he's not going to yeah. put on a disease, but Rofe sounds like a post right right yeah oh so so that, that right so um i i don't remember the exact answer i was going to give but i'm thinking now that the um the way it is used oh i know i was going to go to the uh, in the havinenu thing in havinenu when they summarize it distance us from suffering you see that preemptive rufua um is part of the meaning of what we talk about when we uh, talk about god being a rofe so yeah the way that we think about it you know it's like the ramam says I don't know who came up with this thing, but you know, like there's like three levels of intervention of, of like a medical care. Like there's like, you know, preemptive uh, to prevent you from getting the disease. And then like, if you get the disease, then there's like uh, you treat it with medication. And then like, if that doesn't work, then you cut it out. Like then the surgery and that's the most invasive one. And like the doctor is going to always want to try and find the least invasive one. So God in his peak capacity is Rofe. If we deserve it, we'll prevent any diseases from coming upon us at all. And that's part of God being a rofe, because that's, that's what a regular rofe does, is he prevents the disease before, uh, you know, if you get it and he has to take care of it, that's already a lesser level of rufua. Okay. Bye, guys. Thank you.
Yeah, that's a good good point, right? Is that that's that's a uh, normal human functioning of the bodily systems that we call it rofe, and is preventing like stuff from uh, us from from dying. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay, I guess I'll hang around until uh, people hang up and. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you've gained from what you've learned here today, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Alternatively, if you would like to make a direct contribution to the Rabbi Schneeweiss Torah Content Fund, my Venmo is at matt-schneeweiss, and my Zelle slash Chase QuickPay and PayPal are mattschneeweiss at gmail.com. Even a small contribution goes a long way to covering the cost of my podcast and will provide me with the financial freedom to produce even more Torah content for you. If you would like to sponsor an article, share, or podcast episode, or if you are interested in enlisting my services as a teacher or tutor, you can reach me at rabbishnewas at gmail.com. Thank you to my listeners for listening. Thank you to my readers for reading. And thank you to my supporters for supporting my efforts to make Torah ideas available and accessible to everyone.